Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Musful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. James W. Lowen, author of the book and its new second edition, Teaching What Really Happened, How to Avoid the Tyranny of Textbooks and Get Students Excited About Doing History. Dr. Lowen, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Dr. James W. Lowen is probably most well-known for his seminal book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong. He is also a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians. He taught race relations for 20 years at the University of Vermont and gives workshops for teacher groups around the United States. Jim, I'm very excited to talk to you about this book and its second edition. And I'm honestly, I'm quite fascinated by, by what you've uncovered about our education system and how history is taught in schools. I'd, I'd like you to begin with the image on the front cover of your book, because I think that epitomizes <laughs> what you're talking about um, yes. with um, Washington crossing the Delaware. Can you describe uh, what it means and why you've included it on the cover? I am totally delighted with that picture, and I didn't do it, so I'm not bragging about it. Uh, it was a nameless graphics designer at Teachers College Press who did it, uh, and I liked it so much that I've offered twice to take him out for lunch, but he, I, I, we can never arrange to do that when I'm in New York City. Uh, yes, it is Washington crossing the Delaware. Well, you know, the very first picture, the very first painting of Washington crossing the Delaware had its problems. I mean, Washington is standing up in the boat. Now, it turns out that the boats they use, you could stand up in, but the boat that's on the cover that's in, that's in the painting, Washington crossing the Delaware, is not that kind of boat. And so Washington looks idiotic standing up in that in the boat. Furthermore, some of the people who are pictured in the boat weren't in it. Uh, some of the picture people who might have been in the boat aren't in the picture. Uh, 
it, it, it's got icebergs flowing down the river. Well, the, the painter who knew the Rhine, and in fact, I think painted it while he was living next to the Rhine in Germany. Well, the Rhine does have icebergs uh, coming down from Switzerland, but the Delaware River ain't got no icebergs, no matter what happens. If it freezes, it just freezes across as a sheet, the same way rivers do in Illinois, where I grew up. Sure. So there's all kinds of things wrong with the painting to begin with. But then we improved it. Um, instead of George Washington, it's got Christopher Columbus. I mean, why not? You know, uh, instead of the kind of American flag that they had, it's got the Confederate flag. Uh, it's got Rosa Parks manning a, well, it's kind of would be manning a pole, but they converted the pole into kind of a spear and she's fighting off a, um, uh, sea serpent. The funniest thing I think is that there's an outboard motor on the back. I mean, why not? Um, there's also a little jet plane up in the upper left-hand corner kind of um, uh, tooling along with a little contrail. Uh, and in this new edition, there's Lassie kind of looking at you. Well, the, the point is this. The way we've been teaching American history, we include all kinds of things that never happened. Mm-hmm. And the question is, where are you going to draw the line? Uh, I mean, we got this idiotic story, for instance, that I learned in second grade uh, about how the Dutch bought the island of Manhattan for $24, and in fact, it was $24 worth of beads. Well, it turns out nothing like that happened, and I talk about that in the book, and teaching against that is one of the things I suggest that that teachers can do uh, when they're teaching history as opposed to when they were second graders or third graders. So anyway, if you're going to start lying to people, where do you draw the line? It's a slippery slope. So why not put Columbus in the boat? Why not put Lassie in the boat? That's the thinking of the graphic designer, and I love it. Yeah, it's um, quite uh, humorous. And and, uh, what's interesting is that it's just as humorous without the additions. We just don't realize it, I think. That's right. That's right. And and similarly, the textbooks in a way are humorous, but it's not funny, actually, that we're learning a bunch of things. I mean, let's think for, just for a minute, for instance, about that $24 myth, uh, the, the idea that the Dutch bought um, Manhattan for $24 worth of, worth of beads. Um, we might get into how is that wrong and, and how do I know it's wrong, but let's just assume it's wrong for the moment. And uh, the question is, what does it do for us? Well, what it does for us is it makes the Indians look stupid. I mean, those idiotic Native Americans, $24 won't buy you a postage stamp worth of Manhattan these Mm -hmm. days. They just didn't know what they were doing. And in fact, the textbooks kind of did say that. Uh, they They made it kinder. They said, well, there was a tragic disconnect between the settlers the settlers being, of course, the white newcomers, hardly settlers, but anyway, the settlers and the natives. Um, The Native Americans thought that you couldn't buy and sell land any more than you could buy and sell air. Uh, The the ideas of the European Americans were quite different, and so they they bought, they thought they were buying the, the rights to the land, and indeed they enforced it, so they were buying the rights. Well, it turns out that that's not true either, that the native people knew exactly about buying and selling land. Uh, they also knew that you could buy and sell the land with or without reserving certain rights. You could reserve the right of hunting and fishing on the land, but sell the 
land nevertheless. Um, there's all kinds of things that they negotiated for, and we know this from some of the contracts that they signed with the uh, people we now call the pilgrims up in Massachusetts. So they weren't stupid at all. But uh, it, this $24 thing makes them look so gullible, so completely impressed by these beads that they'll give up their whole village for a couple of strands of of beads. And so it has a function going forward that's not funny at all. And that function is it maintains white supremacy and makes the Indians look stupid. Sure. I wonder if you can talk uh, more about that. You just mentioned uh, white supremacy um, because uh, we're in a very interesting time right now. And I think that's why uh, the book has been republished. You've included a new chapter called Truth. Uh, Tell me more more what you mean about truth and and how this is relevant to us today. Sure. Well, it's actually not just a problem that comes from, shall we say, the Trump administration. Uh, It predates it, and it has its uh, origins in, in several parts of our lives. First of all, in academia. I mean, when I was first working on uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, which was the early 1990s, uh, I spent a lot of time in what we might call graduate school. I mean, I was way past graduate school, Mm -hmm. Um, but I had a a postdoc at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. And I hadn't really realized this, but the Smithsonian History Museum is a graduate school. There's all kinds of people there. I think they still do this, but certainly they were doing it for many years. Uh, All kinds of people there who are there for three months or nine months or whatever, and they're working on their dissertations. Uh, And they compete for these uh, fellowships, and they can do various things with the Smithsonian collections and stuff. So you end up with a whole bunch of grad students, and the faculty is basically the curators and the professional staff of what we call the NMAH, National Museum of American History. And so there I was as a senior uh, postdoc fellow and talking with these people. And I came to realize that um, we were in kind of a post-truth Uh, let's say, modality already, even back in the 1990s, people would say phrases like this. Why should we privilege one narrative above others with the term true? And I, hearing this, would break in kind of and reply, right. And the Civil War started in 1876 in Nevada, it grew out of a pay dispute between the Chinese workers on the Union Pacific Railroad and the management. And people would look at me as if I'm crazy and say, um, but that's not true. And of course, it isn't true. I got the place wrong. I got the cause wrong. I got the people wrong. And I got the date wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, but how do you use the word true? I mean, it's not true. So I'd say, well, bingo, there's a little truth for you. And then people would say, well, that's too easy, of course. So I, then I would point out, well, okay, how about why did we have a civil war? Well, of course, we had a civil war because the South seceded. And so I'm really asking, why did the South secede? And the action, the, uh, excuse me, the answers are perfectly cut and dried in this case. There's no debate about it. Every southern state, when it left the Union, said why it was seceding. Uh, The only thing we have to do is read the darn statements, you know. Uh, And in fact, I made that easy because I'm uh, one of the two editors of a book called The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, which puts them all together in, in between the covers of one book. Well, anyway, 
Um, when you ask that, you get four different answers, at least, but usually four. You get the South seceded for slavery. The South seceded for states' rights. The South seceded because of the election of Lincoln, and it seceded over tariffs and taxes or issues about tariffs and taxes. And people, even in graduate school, who should know better, were saying, well, you know, those all have some validity. Well, they don't. Uh, it, it turns out that the South seceded because it was against states' rights. And yet that was the majority answer that most Americans gave. I know because I've asked the question scores of times in the last 15 years, and I've taken the results down from thousands of people. And, and the winner usually is states' rights, but that's completely wrong. Uh, it turns out that every state, when it seceded, complained about states' rights, listed the states it didn't like, listed the rights that they were upset about, many having to do with fugitive slaves and how Pennsylvania was being kind of nice to them and things like that. So anyway, uh, my point is that there is such a thing as truth in history. We try to approach it as closely as we can. And depending on the issue, sometimes we actually get pretty, we get there, you know, sure. and we need to teach it that way. We need to teach it as uh, there's a bedrock of fact, and you can have your own opinion, but we don't need to listen to it unless you can back it up with something we call evidence. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off sure well you you uh talk about the ethnocentric uh view that's being taught in history and i think a lot of us might be victims of and that just becomes proliferated over the years uh can you talk a little bit about that chapter why europe won and and how that gets just grows and grows and grows sure i uh i've asked a lot of people if they ever discussed in school why Europe won, I, I point out, if you look around the world in 1892, and of course I pick 1892 on purpose, uh, that's the 400th anniversary of Columbus looking around the world in 1492 and, and taking some of it. Well, he actually took it the next year. Um, but anyway, you look around the world in 1892, and there's about three countries that are not run by Europe or its descendants, and I mean really Western Europe pretty much. And those three countries, uh, you want to take a shot at them? You probably know. <laughs> I think I'll pass. Oh, ma'am. Uh, Ethiopia would be one. Uh, Japan would be another. And uh, the third one is up for grabs. I, never mind about that. I, I've got a, a candidate or two. But. Okay. And uh, all the rest of the world, was, was pretty much run by white folks. And you might say, well, what about China? Well, 
China was nominally independent in 1892, but it was really pretty much run by the British, the French, the Germans, the Americans, and in this case, the Japanese. Um, Australia was, of course, run by white folks. The Aborigines weren't running anything. Africa had been carved up except for Ethiopia and so on. Now the question is, why? Why did Europe win? And I've asked all kinds of people, uh, did they ever discuss that in school? And I know I didn't. I went from kindergarten through uh, graduating high school, through four years of college in which I minored in history, through four years of graduate school in sociology, which is about, in my case at least, about American society. And never ever was I asked the question, why did Europe come to win by 1892? Now, I think if you never get asked that question, then you never think about it, the answer. And you have a little vacuum in your little mind. I had a little vacuum in my little mind uh, where the answer should be. And I think nature abhors a vacuum. And into that vacuum, there's a, a little voice that goes in and says, because we're better. We being white folks. I mean, I am a white male American. Um, and that explains it kind of. And so you don't need to explain. You don't need to think about it. And if you don't think about it, then you're going to believe that answer. And that's too bad because, in fact, it wasn't due to our nature that we win. And I show that partly by, in that chapter, I show that by looking around the world, not just in 1892, but also in maybe 2000 B.C., maybe 500 B.C., maybe 500 A.D., and so on. And when you do that, well, you see that different people were different cultures, different societies, were way ahead of the others at different times. And some of those cultures were pretty darn non-white, like they were man, or, or Mayan, either way, and uh, they were Egyptian. And of course, they, uh, it turns out that Egypt got a lot of its seminal ideas from what we might say upstream uh, on the Nile, namely Sudan. And so those are coming out of black culture. So you can't come up with a racial uh, conclusion that explains uh, why white folks are dominating now because it wouldn't explain why white folks did not dominate then. You know, Scotland was a backwater in 500 AD and uh, so were Germany and Scandinavia and so on. They weren't dominating nothing know-how. So it gets you thinking and you realize that the white domination of the world in 1892 is caused by history, not by biology. And then you have to think about it. What is this history? And I think we need to teach about it. And, and then people will understand why it happened. And we won't have this kind of white supremacy mindset that we fall back on, even when we don't mean to. Sure. Um, you talk about history as a weapon, and that seems like a very powerful statement. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that, and, and how, do you, how important is history, do you think? Well, I think it's very important because if you think about it, of all the courses you take in, in high school, history is the course that's most about you, especially American history, if you will. I mean, history, let's say, well, I'll think about a student that I had in, at the University of Vermont, and her father was a sheetrocker. Uh, that's a kind of construction, and pretty much he only worked about nine months because there's not too much construction that goes on in December and January and February in Vermont, even indoors in, in many cases. Um, so they weren't rich, and her mother uh, drove the school bus, so she 
was fully employed in the winter, but not in the summer, mm-hmm. and not employed at any kind of high rate. Now, it turns out, the, although the University of Vermont claims to be a state school, uh, it gets most of its money from tuition. It's really a private school, and in even some other state schools that get more state money are basically for rich folks, and everybody thinks that the University of Vermont is for rich folks. So even if it isn't, um, poor and working-class students rarely apply. And so the the student body is remarkably rich, and, and this girl, we'll call her, that's what the term they used at, at the University of Vermont, um, felt really out of place. Um, now, uh, how does she understand that? How does she, you know, you need to have a history of the United States that helps explain why, even though there's nothing wrong with your family, you're not exactly making it. Um, or, for that matter, uh, you need to have a history of the United States that explains why, if, you're, if your mom's a pediatrician and your dad's a, a corporation lawyer, why you are really making it, and, and not a genetic understanding either. So I think it's a very important co- uh, concept, but what we have instead is history as a weapon. And this is what first got me interested in history. And so let me tell you this story. It's a, it's a good story. Okay. Uh, it starts in Mississippi, as many good stories do. I used to live in Mississippi, and I, I love the state dearly. It's one of the four states I claim as home. Um, and when I first went there full-time uh, for, for more than a year, uh, that was my first full-time teaching job. It was at Tougaloo College, a black college located right next to Jackson, the state capital. And almost all of my students were black, and uh, in particular, the course that I'm about to tell you about, uh, called the Freshman Social Science Seminar, uh, it contained 17 African-American students. And they were meeting the first day of class in the second semester. And this course was based on history, and so it was based on U.S. history. Uh, Therefore, right after the Christmas break is also right after the Civil War, and so we were talking about Reconstruction. And this is particularly useful right now because we are exactly in the 150th anniversary of Reconstruction right now, and we will be for several more years in the sesquicentennial. So I asked my students, I didn't want to do all the talking that first day of class. I asked them, um, what was Reconstruction? What images come to your mind about what happened then? And uh, what happened to me, you might call an aha experience, but it was really maybe more an oh no experience. Uh, 16 of my 17 students said, well, Reconstruction is the period right after the Civil War when blacks took over the government of the southern states, but they were too soon out of slavery. And so they screwed up and white folks had to take control again. Now, my little heart broke uh, there's so many misstatements, lies in that sentence, really four, certainly three, uh, I think four. Uh, the first one is, of course, blacks never took over the government of the southern states and reconstruction at any other time. All the southern states had white governors throughout the period. All but one had white legislative majorities. Second of all, the reconstruction governments did not screw up without exception. Across the South, they wrote the best state constitutions that the southern states have ever had, much better than the ones they labor under today. Uh, they set up the public school system for both races. Uh, they didn't really have a system for white folks. They just had uh, public schools in some of the larger towns. And, of course, they had no schooling whatsoever for black folks, even free blacks. It was a felony to teach African-Americans, even free blacks, to read or write during the slavery period. 
They did various uh, other things that were quite interesting. Mississippi in particular had better government during Reconstruction than at any later point in the 19th century. Mm. So they didn't screw up. And so then a third lie would be uh, white folks took control. No, a certain group of white folks, we have to remember they were white racist Democrats, uh, took control by KKK tactics. Indeed, it was the original Ku Klux Klan. And so I'm sitting there saying to myself, my God, what must it do to you to believe that the one time your group was center stage in American history, they screwed up? Now, if that happened, well, then you've got to think about it, come to terms with it. Why did this happen? How, what can we learn from it? But it didn't happen. Uh, it's what we in sociology, I in sociology anyway, call BS. That is bad sociology. Um, I always get a laugh at that line, especially if I'm talking in a high school or middle school, but uh, they'll remember their concepts. Well, that's total bullshit. And it was... Uh, done on purpose by the state of Mississippi, particularly in a course that was required in fifth grade and then required again in ninth grade. And they made sure to require it twice after the Brown v. Board of Education decision as part of their uh, let's maintain our Southern way of life forever uh, regime. And so uh, we finally, I finally uh, sparked a group to write a new history of Mississippi for that course, the ninth grade course, and the state refused to, to adopt it, of course, and it's an adoption state, so we had to sue them, and we eventually won that lawsuit, uh, but the whole episode taught me, again, that history can be a weapon, that it had been used against my black students, and uh, so ever since then, then, I moved to the University of Vermont, and I still saw that happening. It wasn't as obvious. Mississippi uh, represented a lot of national problems in a more exaggerated form, making it clearer, making it more obvious. But it was a national, and it is a national problem, not just a southern problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about doing history and historiography, because I think a lot of us just view history as events and names, things that happen. Yeah, stuff to be memorized. Right. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot more involved, uh, and, and you talk about that as, as far as doing history in historiography. So what does that mean? Well, let me start off by saying, if you do a survey across the country asking high school students, what's your favorite course? History always comes in last, not in every school, Uh, but generally. And that's because students never do get a chance in most schools to do history. They're just supposed to, quote, learn, unquote, history. And the history they're learning is what I call twig history. Now, they're not even learning trees, and let alone are they learning any forests. They're learning twigs. You know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in, what was that year again? All right, so they learned that twig. And, And then they learned... One of my favorite twigs that I've been exploring recently, they, many of them learned the twig of Vasco da Gama. Now, who the heck was Vasco da Gama? Well, all they remember, and I don't blame them, all they remember is he was an explorer. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe one in 50 knows that he had something to do with going around Africa. Maybe he got to India, which he did. That's actually correct. And that's all they know. Well, it turns out Vasco da Gama was something else. He was, he was such a... Uh, pirate, really, such a cruel and terrible person that a famous black 
uh, singer wrote a song called Vasco da Gama was no friend of mine. And so he, proving that's Hugh Masekela, uh, proving that he knows a lot about Vasco da Gama, but we don't know nothing. We just know that he's supposed to be revered. He's, you know, we're supposed to know him. We're supposed to know Hernando de Soto. We're supposed to know uh, John Cabot, or that's not how he, he pronounced his own name. But anyway, well, the problem with learning history that way is it's just plain boring. And we need to be able to free students to learn about and think about, let's say, Vasco da Gama, or also to learn about and think about stuff that's gone on right in their community. Like, just for example, you can see the women's movement uh, right in your own church, probably, because women are doing stuff in your church, most likely, if you go to church, that they were not doing, that they were not allowed to do in, say, 1950, maybe even 1980. Things like be the minister, uh, or things like uh, read the scripture, and all kinds of other things. So it's very, very interesting um, to do history, but it's not interesting to memorize twigs. Sure. Um, I'd like to expand on that a little bit. You talk, uh, you say you had visited Minnesota to, to speak to some teachers there. And, uh, oh, yeah. I actually have lots of Minnesota connections. I, my, my father grew up in Mountain Lake, Minnesota, which is a Mennonite community out in the West. And I went to Carleton College in Minnesota for four years, okay. uh, et cetera. But go ahead. Well, being from Minnesota myself, I have a particular interest in the U.S.-Dakota War which yeah. took place between the Dakota, some uh, group of Dakota and uh, the United States here in Minnesota in 1862. And you yeah. say you met a teacher who only wanted to talk about the war of 1862 and 1863, um, but that at some point uh, you must include the taking of the land from its first possession. Um, so what do you mean by that? And, and, and how can teachers really teach history beyond just the event? Well, I think uh, she was right. That is to say, um, what I want people to do, and, and of course this book that, that we're talking about, teaching what really happened, is aimed at teachers. And, and so I would suggest people who are listening, you might want to get this book. And what you then might want to do is read it, but keep it nice. Uh, don't mark it up. Don't take notes in it, which you really should do in most books. But keep it nice. Take notes on a separate piece of paper. And then when you're done with it and you've learned all you're going to learn from it, give it to the teacher who's going to be teaching your kid, if you have a child, uh, when they get to high school. Uh, or maybe the teacher who already did teach your kid or maybe taught you history when you were in high school and didn't teach you none of the stuff in my book know-how, you know, uh, and this will give him this, this will advance him or her a little bit along. And, and so we'll, we'll stop some of the lying. Uh, that's what, that's what I hope happens. So I tell people, your job is not to teach the textbook, uh, which is what so many high school history teachers do. Your job is to teach history. You can use the textbook, especially if it's useful, that is, on a given topic, it may have a really good coverage of it. Um, typically, uh, a lot of textbooks do not have very good coverage on stuff having to do with Native Americans. Well, so I tell, tell people you've got to teach 30 to 50 topics, and you choose the topics, but you can't be totally arbitrary. If not, one of your topics is the taking of the land, and I don't mean the buying of it for $32, or I mean $24 worth of beads, or even $32 worth of beads, that wouldn't have been right either. Yeah. Um, if, if one of your topics is not 
how we got the land, well, then you have an incompetent and an incomplete list. Well, I said, uh, I was speaking in Minnesota to about 300 teachers uh, at a big convention of the Minnesota Council for the Social Studies. And I said, I would teach this, and I explained how I would teach it, which I stole from a high school history teacher in Massachusetts who uses the Cherokee removal, the famous trail of tears of the Cherokees from, from North Carolina to uh, through Illinois and, and out to what was then Indian Territory. Uh, and I had, I had a teacher there who put up her hand and said, well, I don't want to teach that. I want to teach, as you said, the, the uh, Dakota-Minnesota or the Dakota-U.S. war that took place in Minnesota in 1862. I said, that'd be great. I actually happen to know quite a bit about that war, partly because I studied how it was celebrated, shall we say, uh, on its 50th, its 75th, its 100th, its 125th, and now its 150th anniversaries. And it's very different how, they, how we celebrated it in different years. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, so I said, you go. You teach that. Uh, that, that counts. That, you, know, you don't need to teach North Carolina. You, you just need to get across the idea of how we got the land. And as long as your students understand it, understand some of the things that went on um, and how the Indians were uh, relatively powerless, and so they had to make the best deal they could and so on, and they can grasp that from the Minnesota experience just as well as from the North Carolina experience. Uh, you, you did mention this uh, about reading the book and then giving it to your teacher, but I was, I was really fascinated that this is important for more than just teachers and more than just students. Um, anyone who, who's ever been through the education system, I think, would benefit uh, from reading this book and, and kind of realizing that they they need to look beyond what they were were taught. Can you talk just a little bit about how um, more than just everyday people should uh, can use this book? Sure. Sure. Uh, well, and, and of course, I wrote a book that everyday people have bought a lot of, and that's um, my book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Of course. Uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me is moving toward two million sales. And what, what's really cool about that is that every copy, or not every copy, but many, many copies get many, many readers, not just one. I know that because people tell me what they do with them, uh, and, and that's really cool. So I would, I would like to say, uh, if, if you haven't read either of these books, uh, well, that would be a good idea, <laughs> and, and I think you would really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. The, the um, teaching what really happened will get you thinking about, for example, why Europe won. Uh, it will get you thinking about how did people get here in the first place, which turns out to be a fascinating issue. Uh, there's all kinds of... Uh, possibilities, some of which probably happened. It's not just one way and not just one time. So you'll have a good time reading it. And you'll also maybe have a good time thinking about how, uh, how we teach things and, and how there are more than one way to get students interested. And uh, that, that's a good thing to think about, even if you're not going to be a teacher. Well, uh, teaching what really happened has been very enlightening for me, and, and I'm glad I came across it. Uh, can you tell us what you're working on right now? Sure. I just finished a revision, just literally two days ago. I finished a complete revision of a of the book I wrote that was kind of the sequel to Lies My Teacher Told Me, and that was Lies Across America. Uh, and so uh, that treats historic sites, S-I-T-E-S, that is museums, historical markers, um, 
monuments, stuff like that. And that book came out already, of course, in 1999. But now, later this coming year, maybe by May or June, um, there will be a completely new edition. And there needs to be a completely new edition because so many things have been happening to our monuments. Um, people are, have been living in a cave if they don't know that, you know, a lot sure. of Confederate monuments have been tumbling down mm-hmm. uh, right there where you live. Lake Calhoun is no longer named for John C. Calhoun, who was the, the major theat- theoretician not only of slavery, but also of uh Secession, and then it's just fine to tear the country apart, uh, and the theoretician of, of white supremacy underlying both of those. Um, well, it's not Lake Calhoun anymore. Uh, Calhoun College at Yale is no longer Calhoun College. And we're working on things like getting the Calhoun Monument in Charleston, South Carolina, down, or getting it put in a museum, maybe put in a kind of a park, the way they put all these statues of Lenin and Stalin and stuff in a park in Budapest in in Hungary. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that'll make people think, you know, Uh, the park, I would call it a nadir of race relations park, because the nadir of race relations is this period, 1890 to 1940, when we went really racist in our thinking, uh, more than any other time in our history in terms of our thinking, and that's when most of these statues went up. And that's one of the reasons why most of them need to come down. So I just finished that book, and, and so that will come out uh, shortly in, in the new year. Um, what am I working on now? I'm actually now working, uh, going to work on a probably a small book about gender. And it's going to point out that most of our studies of gender are really studies of women. And yet gender means how being male or being female affects your life chances, Mm -hmm. affects what you do, affects how you think, and so on. But nobody ever talks about the male side of it. And so that's probably my next next big job. That sounds very interesting. And and you you mentioned the, the monuments, and that's something I never really thought about myself, was thinking about not just the time period that the event happened, but the time period the monument went up. Um, That's right. Yeah, I say that every every uh, statue, every monument, every work of public history is a tale of two eras. It's a tale of what it's about, but it's also a tale of when it went up. And if you think about it, that's even true for a historical uh, novel, a textbook. You know, a textbook may tell you more about when it was written. Let's say maybe uh, a textbook that was written, oh, 1950. Uh, might tell you more about 1950 than it does about the Civil War, the text, the chapter about the Civil War, because we were in 1950, we were still in the in the um, well, we are still in fact in warped by the nadir of race relations, and so we still get some things about the Civil War wrong. But in 1950, we really got them wrong. So uh, it's it's really cool to teach students. Uh, that concept. And that concept, you mentioned the word historiography. Uh, um, I know we're running out of time, and maybe this will be the last last thing I get to. Uh, but I want to teach people that word. I think historiography is the most empowering single word that you can learn in high school. Uh, certainly, it's the most empowering single word you can learn about history. And what does it mean? Well, it means the study of history, simply, but not in the sense of Oh, gosh, I'm way behind. I got to do historiography this weekend. But rather, 
the study of the writing of history, the study of who wrote this monument, who did not write this monument, who was left out of it, why did it go up, when did it go up, how did that bias what it says. Uh, and so what we need to do when we take down these Confederate monuments, and they all need to come down, and they will, they're actually coming down, uh, we need to leave a historical marker behind that says, right here on this uh, base, there was maybe a statue of Robert E. Lee on a horse, and it just said Lee. And it went up in 1922, right in the middle of the nadir. And then you have a sentence or two that explains what the nadir is uh, and why, why it went up. It went up as a symbol of white supremacy in the 1920s, saying we're running the country. This is right next to the courthouse. And we, meaning uh, white supremacists, white folks. And then why did it come down? Well, because by 2020, or whenever the year that it came down, um, we had changed. We now included black folks, Latinos, other groups, and furthermore, the white folks themselves were not so white supremacist anymore. And so, I mean, this would be written a little bit better than I'm sure. saying it. I'm not quite writing it to be put in bronze yet, you know. Uh -huh. But that's what we need to have, a historical... And that tells so much more history than the monument did, which just had three letters on it, Lee, you know. So um, uh, I'm really looking forward to what happens on the landscape now, and I detail some of it in, in this book, Lies Across America, the new edition. Mm -hmm. Well, Jim, I, I really, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I'd really just like to thank you for the work that you've been doing as a sociologist, uh, adding to history and historiography. I'm happy to happy to be thanked. Thanks a lot. I look forward to um, if if readers want to contact me, uh, you can supply them with my my email address if you want. Sure. Um, direct them towards uh, your website and and get them. Uh... Well, yeah. If you put my name James W. Lowen and you spell it right L O E W E N, if you put that into Google, my website comes up first. Uh, and my email is J Lowen, still spelled that way J L O E W E N at UVM, because I still get my email at the University of Vermont dot edu. And I'd love to hear from people who, uh, particularly if they have something to tell me about a sundown town, that's a whole other subject. Uh, but whatever they want to they want to say in reaction to uh, something by me that they've read. Well, great. Uh, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. All right. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.